we are losing more sexual minority students from STEM fields, and it appears to be related to their sexual orientation. This is Parsing Science, the unpublished stories behind the world's most compelling science as told by the researchers themselves. I'm Doug Lay. And I'm Ryan Watkins. Today is LGBT STEM Day, the first international day recognizing LGBTQ plus people in science, technology, engineering, and math. To celebrate, Doug and I talked with Bryce Hughes of Montana State University about his research into the factors that influence the retention of sexual minority students in STEM programs. Hi, I'm Bryce Hughes. I am an assistant professor in adult and higher education at Montana State University. So I grew up in Billings, Montana, which is only a two-hour drive from where Montana State is located in Bozeman. But I had wanted to go out of state for college and ended up going to Gonzaga University in Spokane, where I earned a bachelor's degree in general engineering. However, it was at the university that I had, I guess, lost interest in becoming an engineer professionally. And I was really involved with the LGBT student organization at the university. And Gonzaga's a small private Catholic university. So for the university to even have an organization was a pretty big deal. What we had successfully lobbied the university to support a resource office on campus. And around the time that I graduated, I actually ended up taking on that role for two years and working as the coordinator of that center, which is what moved me from engineering into education and continued on to get a master's in student affairs at Seattle University, worked at a community college for about three years in their diversity office, but ultimately had this goal of becoming a faculty member in an education program like I am now, and was able to get into what I considered my number one choice, and that was UCLA's higher ed program. And my advisor uh, was Dr. Sylvia Hurtado, who at the time was the director of the Higher Education Research Institute. So a number of things that came together that I thought would be the best PhD experience that I could have, and of course jumped on that <laughs> immediately. And then after that, I, uh, I was connected with a colleague who is in the uh, adult and higher ed program here at Montana State. They were hiring a non-tenure track position when I graduated from UCLA, and then... In my second year here uh, was when we a tenure line was made available, and then I, of course, applied for that and am now tenure-track assistant professor here. Brian and I began our conversation by asking Bryce what led to his interest in studying the factors that affect the retention of sexual minority students in STEM programs and how this particular project came about. At some point, I don't remember, it must have been my first or second year in the PhD program working on this STEM education project, and a lot of the papers that we were writing looked at the experiences of underrepresented racial and ethnic minority students in STEM. And a lot of what they talk about are feelings of exclusion, or feelings of isolation, feelings of alienation, feeling pushed and pulled out into directions away from STEM programs. And I remember at some point, reading through some qualitative data, some quotes from students about their experiences in STEM, and all of a sudden just being struck with, 
was this what happened to me when I was in my engineering program? I had never quite thought that it might have been related to sexual orientation like that because I was really involved with some activist organizations at Gonzaga, the LGBT student organization, the Women's Studies Club, and so on. I always figured that I had been cultivating these other interests and realized that I had only gone into engineering because I enjoy doing math. <laughs> that I didn't have as much of an interest in it as, as many people that I was taking classes with. But after reading some of that research, I thought, you know, I've never really thought about whether I was feeling some of these experiences of isolation. I know I wasn't very out in those environments. I was obviously very out in my extracurriculars. So I began then to look for, I wonder if anybody's ever studied this, and the, I came across at that point one paper, it's now become two, um, Aaron Seck and Tom Wydzunas, who were PhD students in sociology together at UC San Diego, they did a smaller qualitative study of lesbian, gay, and bisexual students in engineering, where they interviewed, I want to say it was somewhere around 20 students, and then talked about what those experiences were like. And at that point, that was the only thing I could... I guess there was another study of uh, faculty, too. But that was about it at that point. So at the back of my mind, I had that question, you know, I wonder if <laughs> we might see similar patterns, either along the lines of gender and the experiences of women in STEM or uh, other underrepresented groups. And sort of held on to that. Uh, there wasn't, there really wasn't uh, a lot of space. I guess I did my own small qualitative study where I interviewed openly gay engineering students. That was published last year. And that was another one of those smaller projects I did as a PhD student where I had the opportunity to, to apply for a little bit of funding for the summer from UCLA and had this idea and decided to pursue it, follow through with it. So that, that's kind of where that, that was sparked from LGBT STEM Day and the Oscar So White movement to migration and free speech on campuses. Diversity is a prominent topic of discussion, not just on social media, but in the national media as well. Doug and I were interested in learning what Bryce believes is important about enhancing diversity within STEM, and any field for that matter. So the biggest reason that diversity matters is in terms of the types of questions that people are asking or the problems that we select to solve. The ways that we frame what is a problem that, say, needs a scientific or a technological solution can be shaped by our own experiences. Uh, they shape what questions are being asked, how we think about the problems, and then the, the solutions that are available. For example, I, I saw an article where there were a group of entrepreneurs in the Bay Area that wanted to develop an app to, I guess, pick up laundry. Kind of like an Uber for laundry, if that makes sense. At the same time, there were community-owned laundromats all throughout the city of San Francisco that are struggling and trying to, trying to stay open, trying to keep the, the owners' families afloat and so on. And it seemed like one of those instances where there was a disconnect between the problem that was identified and the solution that was put forth. And that, to me, felt like one of the more pressing examples of 
why different viewpoints and different perspectives make sense if we're trying to use science, technology, engineering, and so on to solve some of these larger problems that we're facing. So obviously an engineer looks at a problem differently than a scientist, than a mathematician, just in terms of what are the range of available solutions that any individual could think of. You put two people together, you might find some kind of synergy, or one person has thought of something that the other hasn't. And, well, the same can be expected of other types of diversity as well, that, that people of different, say, racial backgrounds, people of different genders, people of different sexual orientations, have had different life experiences relative to, I guess, what's important, what's valuable, what needs to be addressed. And bringing those voices to the table means that a wider range of perspectives on, say, what a grant should be written to solve, what kind of an app might be useful for people in terms of uh, a problem that, that people face in their lives. With this groundwork set, we asked Bryce to lay out what his study's main aims and findings were. So the study looked at whether there was a difference in four-year retention in STEM fields between heterosexual students and sexual minority, or lesbian, gay, bisexual, queer and questioning students. And yes, there was a difference in the retention rate between those two groups, and that held in a pretty complex multivariate model, where I tested a whole bunch of other factors that could explain that away and found that the difference was still significant. And women are more likely to leave STEM, but are more likely to complete degrees. I think in the end, men complete more degrees in STEM than women, but the difference isn't as, quite as big as if you disaggregate by race. And the difference by sexual orientation looks very similar to the difference by, by gender than it does by race. And uh, some of the fields, I think there is some... I know there's some movement among... Uh, if I'm remembering, remembering correctly, there are a lot of students who will leave engineering for like the physical sciences and mathematics. Um, you might have a lot of people leaving physical sciences for life sciences. You may have students who transfer into life sciences, or maybe they, they end up somewhere either, maybe they're in an applied field, medical-related or environmental-related, and then transfer into a peer discipline like the life sciences and so on. So that's where you might see some of that movement as well. Initially, Bryce calculated that sexual minority undergrad students were 8% more likely to switch from a STEM major to a non-STEM program over four years. As it turned out, he discovered that his calculations were a bit off, as we'll hear after this short break. This episode is sponsored by We Share Science. When researchers are curious about what is happening in science, they go to We Share Science to explore video abstracts uploaded by other researchers. You can search their vast catalog of video abstracts to learn about the latest scientific findings, or you can share your research with the world. Whether your research is in progress or already published, at We Share Science, you can share your science and grow your impact. Explore the world's research at WeShareScience.org. Now, back to Parsing Science. So that 8% figure is slightly off. <laughs> they're, they're, they're publishing a correction to that. It should actually be 7%. The 8% was computed, I, 
I had done a, a one of the tests that I ran is sensitive to sample size, and so I had actually initially compared all of the LGBTQ students to a random sample of heterosexual students. The difference there was about 7.8%, but in the full sample, the difference is about 73 <laughs> And so that ended up getting into the abstract. I had forgotten that I had done that. And the difference without the without the modeling is closer to 7%, but it was a reporter who asked me about it. If you do the subtraction, if you look at the table that's on page, t- or the table, the figure that's on page 2, and you subtract 63.8 from 71.1, you get 7.3. And that was what she asked, how does that round up to 8%? And I looked at it and said, you're right, it it would round down to 7 if it's 7.3. And then I went back to reconstruct, well, how did I end up here? That was when I realized, oh, the random sample of heterosexual students that I used for my chi-square test they were 71 point, I think their retention rate was 71.8 or 71.5. It was just a little bit higher than the overall percentage. And that I had calculated the difference using that number. But yeah, when you when you control for all these factors that we know contribute to, I don't think I had anything in there. Well, I had a couple in there like gender and race that I thought might might negatively relate to retention. When you control for all of those, the the difference actually increases slightly, and it's that uh, from eight or seven to about nine and a half, close to ten percent. Basically, saying that there's all these other experiences that perhaps are helping sexual minority students stay in STEM at a higher rate than we would otherwise expect. But I felt really bad. I actually called my husband first thing, and I said, "What do I do?" <laughs> I'm already talking to reporters about this. It's going to be published. He said, you probably should just email them and see what they say. Uh, So I emailed them immediately and explained what had happened. And it took them some time to get back to me. But uh, they went ahead and looked at it and said, yeah, we'll we'll go ahead and publish an errata. I, I don't think it's out yet, but they're in the process of getting that ready. Bryce used data from two national longitudinal surveys in his study. Ryan and I were curious to learn more about how the surveys were developed and how they're used in examining students' identification with STEM. Both the freshman survey and the college senior survey are administered by uh, what's called the Cooperative Institutional Research Program, which is housed within the Higher Ed Research Institute at UCLA. They are both ongoing annual national surveys of college students the freshman survey dating all the way back to 1966, and then I think the college senior survey was more recent. I want to say they started administering it in the 90s. I don't think it was any earlier than that, but if you look at the freshman survey alone, they actually sample so that it's nationally representative of incoming first-year college students at four-year colleges and universities. It's basically meant to capture what are the incoming students like at colleges and universities around the nation? And they ask a number of questions about the types of experiences that they had in high school. They also have some psychometric constructs built into the surveys that can then be looked at longitudinally with follow-up surveys. Um, So they they look a lot at, say, self-concept. So there are questions that'll ask students about, say, their perception of their academic abilities that can then be 
pulled together into a construct measuring academic self-concept. The follow-up surveys, there's two of them. One of them is the your first college year, and that's administered to students at the end of their first year. And then the second one is the college senior survey, which is administered at the end of the fourth year. And that's the one that I used. Both of those then ask a number of questions about the types of experiences that students have in college, whether they participated in clubs and organizations. Um, some of the ones I was interested in were whether they had undergraduate research experiences, the extent to which they worked with their peers on class-related assignments. They do ask a number of questions about student attitudes. I want to say the items that, that I included pertaining to science identity looked at the value of contributing to science and contributing to their fields of, of study, the extent to which they found those important. And then, of course, in the follow-up surveys, they have follow-up measures of the, the different constructs that were included in that first-year survey. So there are, um, you might then see a study that looks at change in academic self-concept from the first year to the fourth year, and if that relates to any types of experiences that students have. Doug and I had a roommate in college who was dismissed from her advisor's lab and eventually decided to leave STEM behind and pursued instead a counseling degree. We weren't surprised then to learn that Bryce found that a student's participation in undergraduate research programs was the most influential predictor of their retention in STEM degrees. But we were surprised to learn about an unusual paradox that he found among sexual minority students who take part in these types of programs. Participating in undergraduate research, I mean, in the, in the model, contributes the most to the likelihood of, of staying in STEM. And that's something that research has been showing for probably 15, 20, maybe 30 years now, and why there's so much invested in undergraduate research programs. What I had decided to do then was looking at these experiences that, that I realized, yeah, they're supposed to contribute to retention in STEM, so I wonder if there's difference in participation between these groups to see if maybe that might be playing a role. And the only one where there was a significant difference was participating in undergraduate research. Just a quick note. Specifically, Bryce's study found that 49.4% of sexual minority STEM students reported participating in undergraduate research programs, versus 41.1% of heterosexual STEM students. And the reason I found that surprising was I would have expected the students with the higher retention rates to also be more likely to be getting these experiences. But I had gotten to wondering since talking to some engineering students who had done some undergraduate research and, you know, not feeling 100% comfortable in that environment to be open about being gay, for example, it would surprise me that then more would be involved with undergraduate, or at least initially surprised me that more would be involved with undergraduate research. As I thought about it, it started to make sense in terms of if you're somebody who might actually anticipate completing a STEM degree could be more difficult because, say, you're gay and you're worried that you might be, you might face some stigma among your classmates, you might be more willing to seek out some of these structured opportunities that you know make a difference. Um, whereas heterosexual students, that might not be on their mind. Sure, I, many of them are seeking out undergraduate research because they know it's going to get them into graduate school. 
but they may not have that added concern about how am I making sure I'm best positioning myself in spite of what the discrimination that I might face. Uh, I've also talked to a colleague at Michigan State, Kristen Wren, who has been doing some national work looking at academic success among LGBTQ populations, and she said that they've been consistently finding that LGBTQ students are participating in what we call high-impact practices at higher rates. Undergraduate research is considered a high-impact practice, and one of those where they've where they have also seen higher rates of participation. Um, I want to say it's the the group at Indiana University, the National Survey of Student Engagement, that has de- defined what these it's five or seven high impact practices, and I know undergraduate research is one of them. Overall, women are about twenty to thirty percent less likely to remain within science, technology, engineering, and math programs than men. Interestingly, however, Bryce found that this gender disparity didn't necessarily hold in the same way for LGBTQ students as it did among hetero students. When I talked about that initial paper I read by Aaron Sack and Tom Wydzunas on lesbian, gay, and bisexual engineering students, they heard from both male and female sexual minority engineering students that each of those groups of students felt subject to opposite gender stereotypes, if that makes sense. That there is a stereotype about gay men being feminine and a stereotype about lesbian, bisexual women being masculine. And thus, the negative effects say that women experience for femininity in STEM might also be affecting gay men, gay and bisexual men, whereas those might not be associated with lesbian and bisexual women as readily because of this stereotype that they're more masculine. Um, that it's the stigma is working in a different way. And a lot of the press actually drew attention to this di- distinction. If you see, I don't remember which article, it might be the write-up that was in Science that said, we're losing sexual minority males, but not sexual minority females. Which I thought was a little bit of a misrepresentation of the of the results. So I computed these expected probabilities basically using, if you were to take people on average, when I filled in all of the, the values to just predict in any individual their probability of finishing a STEM degree to see how those differ to illustrate this interaction effect. And I basically put everything at average. Your average heterosexual male, the probability that he would be retained to the fourth year in STEM is about 0.54, which really means slightly more often than not, um, slightly greater than one than half. For a sexual minority male, that probability is 0.45. So it's close to one in two, a little less likely than likely. Then when you look at the two groups of women, sexual minority women's probability is 0.39, and heterosexual women's probability is 0.32. So heterosexual women, it's less than one in three <laughs> that would that would be retained in STEM to the fourth year. And sexual minority women, it's about four in ten. Both of those probabilities are still lower than the two probabilities for the two groups of men. So 
when I when I when I saw the press, I I thought, well, yes, heterosex or sexual minority women appear to be doing a little bit better than heterosexual women, but I don't think it's completely accurate to say that we're losing sexual minority men and not sexual minority women. <laughs> but there's they still have a lower probability of being retained in STEM than sexual minority men. But you could see that the, the probabilities flip. It's estimated that about 11,000 to 35,000 LGBTQ students graduate with STEM degrees in the United States annually. If an additional 7.3% were retained in STEM programs, it could increase that number by about 800 to 2,600 LGBTQ STEM graduates each year. So Doug and I were interested in learning what kinds of resources exist to support these students. We've only recently started to lift some of the stigma around being part of the LGBTQ community, let alone start to dig into what those experiences are like. I still think there's a lot of visibility work that needs to be done in terms of saying there are LGBTQ scientists and engineers out there, and they don't feel completely comfortable within their fields for a various number of reasons, and it's having effects like this where we're losing. It may not be a huge difference between um, heterosexual students and sexual minority students, but we are losing more sexual minority students from STEM fields, and it appears to be related to their sexual orientation above and beyond any other factors that could be keeping people in STEM or pushing them out of STEM. So I know there are a number of efforts that are trying to at least increase visibility of LGBTQ people within STEM fields, including the um, National Organization of Gay and Lesbian Science and Technical Professionals, which goes by the abbreviation NOGLSTEP, N-O-G-L-S-T-P, <laughs> as well as the, uh, there's an organization for undergraduates called OSTEM, Out in Science, Technology, Engineering, and Mathematics. Uh, they recently established a chapter here at Montana State, and, and actually at UCLA, the study that I did where I interviewed openly gay engineering students led to the establishment of a chapter there as well. Um, so they, these are starting to pop up on campuses and, and help draw attention to the fact that there are LGBTQ people within these fields and that they are having different experiences than their peers. Just days before we spoke with him, Bryce had already published a new research paper, this time with Sylvia Hurtado, on how college creates opportunities for students to think about their sexual orientation. Moran and I asked Bryce to talk about what their study set out to learn, and broadly, what they found. So the Thinking About Sexual Orientation paper looks at just the Diverse Learning Environment Survey at UCLA to determine the types of college experiences that might make sexual orientation more or less salient for students. The idea being that when sexual orientation becomes salient and you think about it, it comes to mind, it has an impact on sexual orientation identity development, and that the types of experiences that make it salient, so if they're affirming experiences, like a student attends a meeting of an LGBT organization, that those should positively affect identity development and help students perceive the environment as safe, whereas if overhearing a threatening comment or being harassed by another student is what makes sexual orientation salient, makes them think about it, um, it may also makes them realize that the environment may not be that safe. So what was found was 
both these threatening, harassing experiences as well as affirming experiences do make sexual orientation salient. And that colleges and universities might do well to find those opportunities that positively get students to think about sexual orientation, and we're talking both heterosexual and sexual minority, and then target experiences in terms of improving the campus climate. That was Bryce Hughes discussing his article, Coming Out in STEM, Factors Affecting Retention of Sexual Minority STEM Students, published March 14, 2018 in Science Advances. You'll find a link to his paper on parsingscience.org, along with bonus content and other material he discussed during the show. Are you on Twitter? If so, visit us at Parsing Science for the latest discoveries across science, technology, engineering, and math, including research by our prior and upcoming guests. Or to learn more about LGBT STEM Day, visit prideinstem.org slash LGBT STEM Day. Next time on Parsing Science, we'll be joined by Barden John Buller from Yale University. He'll talk with us about how the new discovery of a 95-million-year-old fossil reveals some unexpected insights into the origins of modern birds. It was a scary time to go swimming uh, at the end of the Cretaceous. But go swimming, things did. And uh, among the things that were paddling around, flying around, was uh, 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 Ichthyornis. We hope that you will join us again.